This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, authors Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard discuss their new cookbook, Koreatown. Then PW features writer Aliyah Akam previews PW's upcoming cookbooks feature. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So what's happening on the nonfiction side of things, well, Mark? We've I'm... got three big books here. At number two is by Sue Klebold, A Mother's Reckoning. And she's the, the mother of Dylan Klebold, who is one of the shooters in the Columbine shooting. Mm-hmm. And she's been on radio stations nationwide. So far, there's been 13,000 units sold. And this is number 10 overall on our bestseller list. Wow. Number two in non, nonfiction. This is the first time she she's opening up and talking about what it's like to be the mother of a son who's committed these murders and and what it's like what's it like still living in the hometown where where she lived mm. um the thought process before during and after all of this uh she's also donating the profits to research into charitable organizations that are focusing on mental health issues which is what dylan has suffered from um this book was embargoed so we don't have a review of it just yet it had just come out but i'm sure we'll be getting one soon so that's at number two now at number four we have kate hudson uh actress uh pretty happy that sold about 12,000 copies and we have a what uh is promising to be a starred review going on on monday so uh, when you listen to this go online you could uh read all about it and then the other big hollywood title is william shatner's remembrance of his friend leonard nimoy in a book called leonard they sold about 6,000 copies last week and we gave a very nice review and from the review we learned that Martin Luther King Jr. was a big Star Trek fan. Yes, he was. He was the reason that Nichelle Nichols uh, stayed on the show when she she wanted to leave. He said, hey, we we need you there. We need people to know that, that black people can go to space. And, and so I she knew stayed. you would know this. Yeah, that it's, is this, fantastic. Is, this is why you keep me around, Mark. It's all the nerd <laughs> trivia. Um, and uh, we have a cookbook uh, on our show mm-hmm. that, that we're featuring today. Um Koreatown by Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard, who are mm-hmm. going to come talk with us shortly. Is that on the list anywhere? Uh, that is number 35. Thank you for bringing that up. Of yes, course. so on our general nonfiction list, that is at number 35, which is, which is really great, uh, I think, for a cookbook that does not have a celebrity chef or celebrity name attached to it. It's a um, solid cookbook, a cultural history. We gave the cookbook a starred review, uh, and that's exactly at number 35. So we'll be talking with both of them later on the show. All right. Well, I can't wait for that. And uh, meanwhile, over on the fiction list, we have a lot going on. Speaking of starred reviews uh, of the the eight notable debuts that we have on the list, six of them got starred reviews from PW. That doesn't happen all the time. There's Sometimes there's a sense that there 
are the books that are popular and then there are the books that the critics like and there's not always exactly. a lot of overlap so right. nice nice to see that for once uh, everybody agrees with us yeah right <laughs> uh, so at, at number one, the world at, agrees. The with world us. agrees with us. The world, the world understands that we're we're right. Um, and number one, we have Jeff, Jeffrey Archer's "Cometh the Hour." We didn't give this a star, um, but uh, you know, we we said that uh, Archer continues his storytelling magic to create characters of spellbinding substance, and readers can count on his surprising twists and shocking conclusions. So it's certainly a very positive review. This is the sixth book in the Clifton Chronicles, the penultimate one. The last one's. Uh, lurking on the horizon mm, and right. uh, it continues with the story of the Cliftons and the Barringtons in the 1970s um, it, this is one of those things where Archer's really built up a following mm. for uh, for these particular books and uh, right out of the gate sold 11,000 copies so mm. Um, very nice start to that. And then moving down the list a little bit, at number 11, we have The Widow by Fiona Barton. And uh, we gave this a star. Said so, uh, It's a stomach-churning suspense novel that asks the question, what would you do if your spouse suddenly became the prime suspect in the kidnapping of a two-year-old girl? Mm. And uh, we say it's just an exceptional debut from British journalist Barton, who circles her story as if it were a lurking panther, unseen but viscerally sensed. Uh, and she tells her tale with a realism and restraint that add to its shattering impact. So definitely a big, big debut here. Um, great to see it doing so well. Uh, moving down a little, number 14, Backblast by Mark Greeney. This is the fifth novel in his Grey Man thriller series um, featuring ex-CIA operative Court Gentry. What a name. Yeah. <laughs> Court, Court Gentry. Um, and, uh, you know, having left the CIA, there's now uh, someone's got a, a hit out on him and he's been running all around the yeah. world trying to stay alive. And uh, we said that the gray man's ability to outthink and outgun the scores of men who are hunting him throughout the streets of Washington, D.C. will keep readers glued to the pages. Mm. Uh, so that's a uh, top notch there. Um, number 21, Midnight Sun by Jo Nesmo, the uh, Norwegian author, um, translated by Neil Smith. And uh, no surprise that this got a star. We we love his work. Yeah. Great, great work. Um, this is an excellent standalone from Nesbo, who's an Edgar finalist. Um, and in this one, uh, the protagonist is a fixer or a hitman. So now we get the opposite side. Mm -hmm. um, instead of the guy dodging the hit, we have the hitman trying to find his target. Right. And uh, he's uh, he was working in Oslo and then fled the city for a tiny village in the far north that's populated by Sami and dominated by a very strict religious ethos. He's hiding under an assumed mm. name. Um, and uh, we say he's a bad boy with a heart of gold who got into trouble because he was trying to help someone close to him. And we say the book is immaculately plotted, perfectly paced, also darkly funny and deadly serious. And Scandinavian gloom notwithstanding, <laughs> it has a neatly satisfying and surprisingly moving ending. So that's on our list at number 21. Um, at uh, 23, with No Shred of Evidence by Charles Todd. Mm -hmm. um, this is the 18th Inspector Ian Rutledge mystery, a solid entry in the series. Um, features an intriguing puzzle about four young men uh, who were somehow involved with a man drowning in Cornwall in 1920, mm. but were they trying, or four young women, trying to help him uh, or trying to kill him? 
not clear. And so uh, as Rutledge strives to reconcile conflicting testimonies, he also has to resolve some clear-cut crimes of violence. And we say that atmospheric scenes of suspense set in the lonely Cornish countryside are a plus. Just below that, at number 24, A Doubter's Almanac by Ethan Cannon. We gave this a star. Um, And uh, sort of unlikely themes, the mysteries of higher mathematics and the even deeper mysteries of the human heart Mm. are at the heart of this novel. And uh, we say that Cannon writes with stunning assurance and elegant, resonant prose. Um, Though the book is occasionally a little repetitive, his accomplishments are many, not least of which is his ability to lucidly explain the field of algebraic topology to Mm. those who are not already familiar with it. And we say his superb storytelling makes this novel a tremendous literary achievement. Just a little below that, down at number 32, The Girl in the Red Coat by Kate Hamer. We gave this a star. Um, So all these really great books coming out. It's a good time of year to go and pick up a new novel, clearly. Um, And uh, in this one, British single mother Beth knows her eight-year-old daughter, has a tendency to wander, but one day the girl vanishes at a local festival and cannot be found. And a man who claims to be the girl's grandfather convinces her that her mother has been in a terrible accident so she leaves uh. with him and ends up uh, essentially imprisoned. So there's a, a sort of two-sided Horrible. story. Yeah. Her mother frantically searches for her, slowly isolates herself from the outside world. And meanwhile, the girl is told that her mother has died and soon finds herself in America with her new ostensible grandparents um, who work as spiritualist healers. And we say that um, the story is told in two remarkable voices. Beth's chapters unfurl in past tense, Carmel's in present tense, Mm -hmm. and the author weaves a page-turning narrative. The trajectories of the two leads through despair, hope, and redemption are believable and nuanced, resulting in a morally complex, haunting read. So brace yourself before picking this one up, because it's clearly going to hit your emotions pretty hard. And finally, uh, just want to note Breaking Wild by Diane Le Bequet. Um, this is uh, her first novel for adults after three young adult novels. And again, we gave it a star. Um, said she scores big with this very adult thriller about two women facing life and death challenges in Western Colorado's rugged wilderness. And uh, this is another missing person's story. There's a woman who disappears while hunting one morning. She's an experienced outdoors woman, a skilled bow hunter. Everyone's surprised when she vanishes. And the other woman is a ranger with the Bureau of Land Management um, who takes her rescue dog and uh, joins the search just as winter weather closes in. We said this is a powerful story of survival, wilderness fieldcraft, and fractured relationships packed into a suspenseful plot with more than a few surprises. So definitely not your typical uh, adventure novel. This sounds almost more like a, a horror novel with the, right. the howling winds yeah. and the snowstorm. So quite an exciting adventure there. Sounds like a great list, both nonfiction and fiction. That's right. So yeah. um, for once, you can uh, you can use our, our bestseller list as a shopping guide too. Right. Um, <laughs> check out all of those books that uh, we gave rave reviews to. It's really nice to see them doing so. Yeah, well. great. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard take us to Koreatown. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard in the office, and their new book is Koreatown. Hello, Dookie. Hello, Matt. What's up? So, hey. so glad you could join Thanks, us. man. It's really an honor to be here. I, I'm thrilled that you're on the show. This is a great cookbook, and I, so, and I also want you to know, I think I just told you, uh, that your cookbook is now, uh, will be number 35 in general nonfiction, and number two on on our cookbook bestseller list, PW's oh. cookbook bestseller list. That's so, so incredible to hear that Korean food. Well, I remember it. talking with you uh, before the book was even published, yeah. and uh, um, so so let's talk talk yeah. a little bit about the book, um, yeah. and then I want to talk about where the book stands. With there's a, you're, you seem to be writing a wave of 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 Korean food and Korean cookbooks uh, yeah. in American culture right now. But let's just start. Why Koreatown? So. For me as a journalist, um, it's just such a rich topic. I, I'm not Korean. Dookie Hong is the, the Korean. Korean on the, the token project. Korean guy on the project. But, uh, and we, we couldn't do it without each other. That was the, that's the beauty of the project. But for me as a journalist on the piece, on, on the project, it was really um, such a rich topic to cover because it hadn't been covered from that point of view. It's the first cookbook written from the perspective of Koreatown. It's not um, written from... Uh, a YouTube studio. Mm-hmm. It's not written from um, a celebrity travelogue of Korea. It's written from Koreatown. And to write the book, we had to travel. We traveled all over the United States. Uh, you know, we're based in New York City, but we went to Los Angeles like six times. Mm-hmm. We were on Delta like every other month, going to uh, going to the Koreatown in in LA, which is the biggest. But we were also mm-hmm. going to smaller Koreatowns in Duluth, Georgia, in Philadelphia, in Washington D.C which is a little larger, San Francisco. And we were there to to record and to observe Korean food and culture. So Dookie is, mm-hmm. is a restaurateur. Uh, you uh, have a restaurant in, if I'm not mistaken, Koreatown in uh, New York City. Yeah, no, I, I live it and breathe it uh, and talk about it every day. <laughs> um, so, so, so yeah, we, we do have a, a restaurant. It's called Pekjong New York City on 32nd and 5th. Um, and it's a Korean barbecue restaurant that we just try to do it a little bit. Nothing different. We just try to do it a little bit better and care a little bit more. Uh, better quality meat better service and i think people really we've gotten uh, embraced by the industry and we've uh, yeah just been a product of people's mm-hmm. well so what does koreatown mean to you what is koreatown um uh i, I mean to me it's it's like little italy once yeah. was yeah. where there's yeah. uh a there was at one point uh italians lived in the neighborhood mm-hmm. but now it's just become a tourist destination mm. for for uh, uh for people eating uh, italian food wanting to go out um yeah. what about what tell me about the koreatowns uh throughout either in new york city mm-hmm. or, or or throughout the country I mean, 100%. I think uh, Coast, um, you know, Matt touched upon it. New York and L.A. is probably the biggest one or the most well-known. Um, and like you said about Little Italy, maybe we're kind of in that direction. I mean, it's great. Maybe when I started going to Koreatown out here, um, I write about it in the intro of the book of my love-hate relationship with Koreatown. Um it was that when I first started, it was just Koreans. Like nobody knew about Thirty Second Street between Sixth and Broadway. Um, it was always just a Fifth and Sixth or whatever it is. Um, but now you see probably more non-Korean people on K Town mm-hmm. than at least in New York City, and you can see it in LA too. Because, like you said, it's it's people know about it now. Um, mm-hmm. It's a spot that you can go mm-hmm. at 
uh, 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. and you'll see uh, the same live energy. Um, it's it's really unique. There's no place like it. I think you know during our travels we learned a lot in going to a, a city like Atlanta and embracing their Koreatown, which is like not touched. You know, it's kind of still what New York or LA was 10, 15 years ago. You know. So could you tell me a little bit about, for instance, Atlanta, Koreatown? Mm. Uh, I, I mean, is it the same sensibilities, the same uh, food? Um, as, say, in New York or L.A.? Um, I would say it's closer to... There's nothing like New York. I mean, I'm, I'm from, we're from New York, so <laughs> sure. I'm not biased. But um, <laughs> New York feels... 32nd Street feels like Seoul. I think mm-hmm. he... Um, it's tall. It's hus- it's bustling. You go there Friday, 11 p.m. Um, it's the energy is unmatched in the country. I think Atlanta is very similar to LA in the fact that um, it's good food. It's very good food. Um, it's kind of uh, spread out in, mm-hmm. in strip malls and um, separate. But that Koreatown is so it's it's huge. It's yeah. burgeoning. It's yeah. actually the fastest growing Koreatown in America. It's not actually Atlanta. It's Duluth, Georgia, which is mm-hmm. twenty miles north of Atlanta. Oh wow! Um, so for various reasons, it's, people are, are flocking there. It could be the weather. It could be cheap land. You know, mm-hmm. New York City is becoming incredibly expensive. But you find these restaurants that are popping up in abandoned shopping malls and we write about in Koreatown our experience in these restaurants where they're cooking this food that's very much for Koreans by Koreans mm-hmm. um, but in a in a area that isn't the stereotypical Koreatown in New York it's it's very different it looks very different it feels very different so I and I know I just talked about little Italy's, but uh, uh, K- Koreans are known to be the Italians of uh, Asia, uh, and for their yeah. love of food. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. That's um, a good we one. We have a rich history. I mean, even even just to even go on to the ingredients, our food takes time, and I think um, you know. Talk about Italian. I'm not Italian, but I have some really. Um, <laughs> but you have friends. I have friends Italian. that are yeah. Italian, and the way they talk about food, like you just said, is way Koreans talk about their food. Like mm. you'll be eating a meal, and the topic of conversation is food. It's like, or drinking, or so. Um, food is a big part of of what we do. Um, it's a social thing. It's a food. It's just a delicious. It's a sustenance thing, obviously, but it's it's an event. You know, Mike. Let's talk about garlic. <laughs> Let's there is about, there is some garlic yeah. in Korean food. I mean, I've cooked a lot of Italian food in my past, but it is garlic is probably used more prevalently in Korean cooking. I mean, it is in everything, and Koreans actually seek out good garlic. And I'm sure in, in Italian markets, good garlic is a thing versus just the the the, the dried out garlic that you find in the supermarket. But uh, it's bold flavors, you know. Yeah, I think there's the same kind of similarity. At least somebody that's been in the culinary industry as as a, as a chef myself. Um, you see the same, you know, Koreans have their grandma cooking. And then when you think about Italian, I think about grandma cooking. Mm-hmm. And then you do have those guys that are kind of doing the modern cakes. And you have the same guys that are doing the modern cakes. I think there's a very uh, evident parallel between mm-hmm. Italian cooking and yeah. Korean cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least right now where, where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Matt, I'm going to ask you yeah. this because you're not just a journalist. You're the executive editor, if I'm not mistaken, of Food Republic. I was. I was a contributing editor. I'm, I'm, I was at Food Republic for four years, but now I'm a contributing editor, so I'm doing more freelance. But yeah. Well, you're still still yeah. out there writing about yeah. food. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the popularity of Korean food these days. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, you've, 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 you've written this book um, with Dookie, and, but you also are well aware of what is 
popular? What's mm-hmm. what are the growing trends? Mm-hmm. Why why Korean? Why is Korean right now? I think shop. It, it is a now moment. Um, it is a tomorrow moment as well. And I think with our book. Uh, we're going to open up a lot of conversations, but really it's Asian food. It starts with that. Asian food is now what people want to read about in the cookbook world. I think you're seeing so many great releases. It started maybe five years ago with Mamafuku and you've got Pak Pak. You see some of the bestsellers are, are, uh, are Asian books, but people really are gravitating towards those flavors. Um, people from various reasons, it's interesting, it's healthier. It's, it's not, it's dairy free, it's gluten free. There's a lot of reasons you cook Asian, but I think people now are thinking about Asian food in regions. It's not just Chinese food. You mm-hmm. know, you're talking about Yunnanese cuisine in Sichuan. You're talking about Thailand and breaking up North versus South and Pak Pak did such a great job of, of breaking that down. You've got Japanese izakaya, Japanese arabata. You've got all these different books that focus on the, on the different elements of Asian cooking. Uh, Korean food hasn't really had that moment with in the, in the, in letters, really it, it, it's had these celebrity chefs doing these books, but with our book, we think we, we've really drilled down into these specific dishes that you'll find at restaurants. So you'll have, for example, a restaurant that does samgyetang, which is this ginseng chicken soup. Um, and you, we, we think that Americans will love that dish. I mean, mm-hmm. it is like the most incredible, comforting dish. Um, mild. It's not the kimchi chicken, the mm-hmm. kimchi stew. It's very different. That's just one example of many in, that we write about in the book where we're really drilling down into specifics. We're not generalizing the cuisine. And I think uh, cookbook buyers are wanting, are, are seeking that specification, spe- that speciality. I mean, are you seeing that yourself as an editor? Oh, completely. Yeah. I, I mean, just uh, coming up on, on the heels of this book yeah. are, well, there was Mong Chi, who last yep. year uh, was with her book, yeah. came out with her book. Uh, and But I'm saying following up in the next season or so, I'm saying two, three, four more mm-hmm. uh, Korean cookbooks. Mm-hmm. So this is, I mean, it's all coming at a good time it and, is and good. i think you're absolutely right about uh um and it's not just korean but it's it's asian but people are are, are seeing that there's more to asian than just pan asian or, yeah. or chinese cooking there mm-hmm. yeah. there you know there's many regions of of china as there are and i'll stop with the italian references yeah. the same as that <laughs> but in the same with france and yeah. and uh so I'm, I'm definitely seeing that but but there is something about Korea. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the recipes. How mm-hmm. are the recipes, do you think, perceived by Americans? I mean, I almost think that, uh, um, and perhaps this is true the way Americans think of many Asian recipes, that they're maybe too complex. Mm. Ooh, that's a good question. We, Duke, you want to take that one? Yeah, I think um, it is. It's First of all, it's language that you're not used to. So mm-hmm. when I say gochujang to you, you don't have anything popping up in your head. It's the education process mm-hmm. also. I think Korean food is a little bit different, and Matt touches upon it a lot, is that maybe different than Thai cooking, at least on the pantry end. We have a great pantry section that um, kind of, it's really simple. And I, I read it too, and I was like, oh, even as a Korean, mm-hmm. it's really simple. Um, and, you know, Korean food is great because it's based on changs, which are like these fermented soybean paste. And that's kind of like the foundation of mm-hmm. our cooking. Soy sauce, soybean paste, chili paste. Um, and you have those three or four ingredients, and it branches off into hundreds of dishes. Mm-hmm. I would say a little bit different than Thai, where you need a new pantry. You know, you can't mm-hmm. substitute galangal. You can't substitute lemongrass. You can't substitute uh, a good fish sauce and, mm-hmm. and a lot of these other uh, tamarind, a mm-hmm. lot of these ingredients that are really the basis of Thai food. And you can't substitute it. Then it's just not Thai food. Mm-hmm. I think Korean food, um, it doesn't it doesn't really 
make you go clear out your pantry. It's like, hey, just buy two or three of these things and you can... I mean, we're talking about the larder is sesame oil, garlic, ginger, scallions, mm-hmm. soy sauce. You know, it's, it's as you're saying, it's Which is a common theme in a lot of uh, Asian cuisine. So you have, you're have you going to have your ginger, garlic, uh, sesame oil, soy sauce, mm-hmm. you know, and then to make Korean food, you just need a couple of these pastes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you make Thai food, just buy lemongrass and the XYZ. Um, Chinese food, just get some Szechuan, whatever. But the base of it, of all Asian cuisines, is like yeah. ginger, the mm-hmm. garlic. The, yeah. The, the, and in um, terms of recipe development, too, so to answer that part of the question, which mm-hmm. is the complexity of Korean food, yes, there is a, it is perceived as being complex. And it's true. There are dishes that take months of fermentation. I mean, beju kimchi, the cabbage kimchi, can age for a year. And that's a very, it takes patience and time. Uh, but really, uh, a lot of this cooking is one-pot cooking. You know, the mm-hmm. soups are nice. made in one pot with potential with a stock that takes uh, 20 minutes to make. You put that in and you're making soup in uh, in 30 minutes. It's not the long boils and the long braises. So that's that's what we try to do in, with the book. We're, we're kind of breaking down in the head notes um, the cooking technique and, and really trying to simplify these concepts that maybe have been written about in other recipes or other books is a little bit more complex. I mean, yeah, and these recipes, how we approach them is the same. You're right. We're going to have kimchi takes like you said, anywhere from weeks to months to years. Um, but we have a quick kimchi recipe that mm-hmm. you can make. Like if I bought ingredients right now, I can have it ready for you in dinner. Like 20 minutes, not even. So, so it's a quick pickle. It's a quick yeah. pickle. So right. for us, we wanted to, and how we approached even the writing, the, the photography, um, and the recipes is very similar. Like, hey, if you're going to present it to your friends, we're not experienced. I mean, he has he's experienced in the journalism world and whatnot. But for Faking me, it. Yeah, for me. <laughs> totally. For me too. I've never, you know, I've never worked in a studio and, and made 20 dishes and like, all these beauty shots so we were just like all right we're we're gonna cook for our friends and we're gonna make a quick recipe for my friends what would i do eliminate all the fuss Mm -hmm. you know get a pot put these ingredients in simmer for 20 minutes and you have a meal so um, not just any meal the best yeah and not exactly and and we didn't to say that we didn't compromise anything too it wasn't like oh like substitute gochujang with x no if you substitute gochujang with something else it's not korean food yeah um so it's like sambal a lot of times people will substitute mm-hmm. sambal with gochujang and what and so explain to us the sambal uh, the is difference. like a thai chili uh paste thai unfermented chili sauce. yeah so for us we don't there's no compromise on on yeah. any of it but we do capture the essence of every dish where when you eat it you can order it at a restaurant and have the same mm. it'll have the mm-hmm. same feel right yeah. right we're gonna take a quick break but don't go away Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard, authors of Koreatown. And uh, we're having a wonderful conversation yeah. about food, about Korean food. Italian and food. Uh, <laughs> and some Italian food yeah. in there. Um, in your restaurant. So, so Dookie, you, you, as we've, we've discussed, you own a restaurant in uh, Koreatown, uh, New York City. It's mm-hmm. also a place where I've eaten. It's also a place where I go for karaoke. Uh, <laughs> tell us how you got there. Tell us your culinary background and how you ended up opening a restaurant. Yeah, so Koreatown is probably the last place I, I would have ever thought I, I would I would be cooking. Um, I got an opportunity when I was super young, uh, when I was 15, to cook for a chef, uh, Aaron Sanchez, um, in his Mexican uh, 
uh, restaurant in Tribeca called Centrico. And from there, it was just exciting. I mean, it's a 15-year-old kid in a, in a kitchen full of grown men, and they're, everyone's cooler than you. Uh, everyone's more uh, badass than you. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. So I felt part of a fraternity. It felt cool. So um, I did that for two years. A uh, chef told me to go to culinary school. Uh, that I need formal education. Um, I disagreed with him. And so I just, you know, I listened to Chef after culinary school. Um, I went to Momofuku. Uh, before Momofuku was Momofuku, um, I mm. like to say. Or at least before, uh, before Chef Chang was, uh, before David Chang was who he is now. Right. Um, and I learned an, an immense amount. I mean, I, I joke around. I thought David Chang was a Korean chef, um, like <laughs> Korean food chef. I always right. wanted to do the Korean food. That was not something that was a, a dilemma for me. You always wanted to do Korean. I did. I mean, yeah. I, I've, my dad said something to me super early on. And, and when I was cooking, he was like, you know, talking about Italian, going back to Italian food. If you had the best bowl of, I don't know, a bucatini, right. And you, you're done eating it. And the, and you're like, man, may I meet the chef and this, you know, Chinese guy comes out. How would you feel? You know, mm. is it is it politically wrong, correct? Probably not. But you'd be like, oh, that's not better than my mom. So I was, you know, my dad said the same thing. He's like, you can make the best French food all day, but if you come out, you know, there's gonna be that disconnect. And for me, luckily, I like to cook food that I eat. Um, and um, so, I, but I did, yeah, I did the momofuku thing um, for a year. Um, learned an incredible amount. The culture there is incredible, and I still adopt, and I still kind of take that momofuku feel, even in my food um, that I create. Um, after that, I got an opportunity to work at Fine Dining at uh, John George's for um, uh, for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and that was a totally different experience. The whole fine dining, uh, pursuit of perfection, um, quality, quality, quality. Um, it was just a different world. Um, and after that, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Um, I want to cook Korean food now. Like I've, after that, it was probably like seven years into cooking. Um, I was like, I need to, I'm done learning this technique, that t- technique. French food is great, uh, but I need to go back to the food that I like eating. So mm-hmm. um, slowly but surely, I, 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 you know, went back to kind of Korean food and, you know, getting comfortable with the ingredients. And then I feel like a Korean barbecue restaurant is like uh, having a good burger joint in America. Like you, you need a good, we, you know, I work for circle hospitality group and they, we our little tag is that we want to be the premier Korean hospitality group in New York to have that. You can't not have a good Korean barbecue mm-hmm. restaurant. We felt like, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like, uh, the Teresa group, um, not having a good, Passage or not, right, not having a good right. bowl of XYZ, right? So um, we really focused on it. We knew we weren't doing anything different. We did want to be in K-Town for the kind of the cultural respect to our generation, mm-hmm. but also kind of signify that there's a new generation of, of Korean cooks, Korean restaurateurs coming along. So, yeah, so if you walk into our restaurant, it's very uh, similar in the fact that it's Korean barbecue, but it's kind of different in the way we approach service and the food so with your cooking and also with the cookbook i i i may gather from what i looked it's traditional korean food but were there any nods made to the american palate or in your experience uh, either either matt and putting this together and seeing what would be palatable or, or at least might be interesting to americans or for you dookie who has 
been trained, obviously, uh, you know, from a, a, you know a very wide variety of of chefs. I mean, including Jean George, which is you know French, but but also uh, you know you belong to the hospitality. Yeah. You know, you're part of the hospitality group. It's a way of presenting. What has changed, or what did you do differently, if at all, in your restaurants and in the cookbook? So I think in terms of uh, kind of catering to the American palate, I mean, we're, we're Americans. You know, it's not a book from Korea. So, for example, our kimchi bokumbap, which is kimchi fried rice, when we were developing it, we are like, we don't want to do a traditional kimchi bokumbap. We want to put something in it that really feels like what we want to eat all the time. And, and what is that? Just describe that, to us what that, that is. That single thing would be bacon, Mike. And bacon yeah. and right. butter. So right. we just kept adding bacon to the recipe. We wanted to have bacon. We wanted to really have a lot of bacon in it. I mean, the essence right. of bacon needed to be in every bite. So what we did was we just kept adding more bacon. But also a genius of Dookie was to add butter, but not just just slabs of butter. It was uh, gojujang butter. Yeah, we smoked it. I mean, I love, I love kind of going back to, I think this, this, the question is more about uh, it's traditional, but is it authentic? And mm-hmm. the way we approached our recipes... Um, we didn't care. We were really like, um, we're not, we're Americans, as Matt mm-hmm. said. I grew up eating just as much as I ate Korean food at home. I ate burgers, fries, pizza all day. And fried chicken is my jam. Like, I, <laughs> nobody touches me on Sutton fried chicken. Um, so I can't, we can't be authentic. There's no way. Well, that this word book, is not really in right, the book. This book you is not authentic just because we're, we're, first of all, we're covering the Korean food in America. Yeah. You know, Korean food in Korea is is different than in LA. LA is different than New York, New York to Georgia. Yeah. So, um, we couldn't we couldn't stress about it because once we started stressing about it, yeah. then we could probably get nothing done. Um, and you know, the recipe he's talking about is a perfect example of that. It's kimchi fried rice. When you eat it, when Koreans eat it, when Americans eat it, okay, oh yeah, I definitely taste the kimchi and it's the fried rice. I'm used to eating it, but then we just wanted to be like, what's super tasty super delicious i think bacon is freaking awesome and yeah. you can't go wrong if you add bacon and butter to something it's kind of like cheating <laughs> yeah you know, and, but, um, but also you know we have this our last section in the book is called respect and it's our guest recipe sh- section so dookie did 85 recipes on his own when we developed in the kitchen but the respect section was we asked a lot of our friends in the, in the chef community to do a recipe that wasn't the typical fusion wasn't just a kimchi taco or a, a spin and Korean fried chicken. Mm, right. So we had like a Mandacoan do Korean fried broccoli, which is like really plays it. Mandacoan is the chef at Dirt Candy in New York, right. which is a really great vegetarian restaurant. Which is on her menu. Which is on her menu. Yeah. So yeah. she did that. You know, we have Danny Bowen doing Solantang, which is a very traditional uh, Korean bone broth, but he's using uh, smoked brisket and uni in it. So it's kind it's of... like a pastrami now. Yeah. I think it was a, a nod to like New York. Right. So, so cool. Yeah. So rather than, than a fusion of like uh, uh, mixing Korean with... <laughs> With Mexican, right. what they've done is taken a traditional uh, Korean recipe mm-hmm. and added their own twist to it. I mean, it's really respecting the. I mean, the the title is uh, the chapter of the the title chapter is named perfectly. Is that they really respect the Korean ingredient? It's not right. oh crap, this is an Italian. All right, let me add a chili paste. All right, now it's Korean. Yeah. Um, they're very well composed, and we picked. We had a lot more than twenty recipes. But yeah, we we, we chose had to edit 20. it down, but we have like mm-hmm. a John John and Vinny from Animal in Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. Stuart Brioza from State Bird Provisions. We have uh, Eric Repair. Uh, Danny Bowen. I mean, we have a really nice list of, and a very diverse uh, list of chefs. But all of them uh, really love Korean food, mm. oh, and yeah. and it's kind of the secret that 
chefs go to Koreatown at the end of the shift. And it's not because they love Korean food. It's because Korean town is open. I mean, they're not eating their food, for sure, when they end the shift. You know, for me, I don't eat at Koreatown. Um, I just can't. Well, you can't, but most most chefs go. um, Yeah, and and, uh, we mentioned it at our restaurant. It's so awesome for me. It's because these, like, guys that you read about, that you, like, respect to you know are literally coming to your house you don't even have to go to them you know right. they come here with their crew and we just like i cook for them and then i get to pick their brains so for me it's like a win-win like if i didn't even get paid from the restaurant it'd be okay like and i keep joking about that <laughs> but i'm not lying because <laughs> when the when's the last time you had you know um uh chef eric repair come into your restaurant when's the last time you had Corey lee chef Corey lee of benu right. san francisco come and just eat and you know you just like bother him and mm-hmm. um that experience or that ability to do that um i think our book is really cool in the way that i that's my favorite uh section of the whole (laughs) book you know the recipes are great the stories are incredible but the fact that all these chefs that you're like these are your heroes and your idols Mm. they're like oh yeah well we'll, we love koreatown we know a koreatown um we love korean food so here's our recipe so it's great and how would you talk about other than these 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 guest chefs uh, in in the book, the differences between Korean food in New York, say, and Atlanta, say, mm. St. Louis or mm. Los Angeles. I think California. We've both admitted uh, that it's the best Korean food in America. Korean food in America. We didn't say the best Korean. No, town. but best Korean in America. It, it has a lot to do with. Uh, California has great produce. Mm-hmm. Right. It has the best produce in the country. It's perpetual growing season, right. and and beef is very very good there as well. So. Just putting those two elements together, mm-hmm. uh, couple that with um, cheaper real estate, so you don't have the the pressure of, of margins. You know these rates within margins. Um, you still have small margins, but they're not as small in LA. And I think you've got the best quality restaurant. But that Koreatown is not just about the food quality. I mean, right. there's a lot of other reasons we talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, Atlanta though, you'll find some southern twists here and there. You know, you'll find restaurants that do a little southern barbecue, like what. American style barbecue. This right. great restaurant called Heirloom uh, Barbecue does uh, their style of Korean barbecue, but it's really slow and slow over yeah, wood. Yeah, yeah. So you'll see those little southern. Yeah, our friends Cody and Chian uh, Chian run that, but it's American barbecue. If nobody said that the rub that they're using, the dry, uh, spices that they're using, or the kimchi slaw was Korean products like soybean paste and then they rub it with like a korean chili paste you would not know because when you eat the brisket you're like oh this is just american southern uh delicious barbecue. yeah delicious so when you go back into the kitchen like hey cody what are you using oh i use tenjang korean soybean paste and you're like oh that's so cool you know and um, miso he uses he puts miso yeah. into the injector yeah with and it's just like needle. this is another way like it, that could only happen right. in georgia oh know? interesting oh that's great now i just want to do a little bit of backtracking i've been wanting to mm-hmm. ask you how did you two come together um how, was it through your your your, your days of a journey tinder. Tinder. totally dude okay we're, so tinder we're both God. rivaling yeah. i'm married i'm very i'm, I'm married in <laughs> tinder yeah. so and i want to talk a little bit about the the concept of the book and the production of it and let's yeah, talk so, about that so how you two met and then let's put this book together well we met uh, through a small guidebook project which I was leading and I was mm-hmm. a judge and it was a um, kind of like Michelin guide there are a number of judges and we were rating Korean restaurants and I had to right. go to 78 Korean restaurants um and we met because we both were judges and we connected over our shared love of the cuisine and also right. just mm-hmm. writing about it and talking about it obsessively but um, the production of the book it's a good question we really when we sold the book 
uh, our proposal was very specific. And with that, uh, not everyone bought it. It's just the way it goes. And this is almost three years ago. And as you noted earlier in the conversation, Korean food has changed since then. But we really wanted the book to be um, reportage, documentary. Those are the words we used. We wanted to tell real stories from Koreatown. We didn't want to go into a, a photo studio with Spotify humming in the background and air conditioning and do like 75 photos in three days and the way most cookbooks are produced. We rejected that notion. Mm. Um, with that, the, the actual production became very difficult. Um, we had to travel. We had to put all of our advance money into the actual production, to shooting. Uh, but with that, we really feel strongly that we've captured a really unique style of cookbook writing. And I think you know, I never set out to be a cookbook writer. It's not really what I, I write about food and I write about culture, music, art, all sorts of things. But uh, writing about food and, and, and doing a long form text uh, about Korean food and calling it a cookbook, but not really doing a cookbook um, is in, makes me really proud. And I have to give credit to Francis Lamb at Clarkson Potter for buying the book and right. from day one saying, you know, Matt and Dookie, you guys can bring this photographer along who, you know, isn't a no, well-known photographer and you guys can go and travel. And it's, we feel really lucky that we're in his hands. Yeah. I mean, uh, every, the hope, I mean, now kind of looking back on the production process, I mean, to begin it, um, this was all Matt's idea. So people don't understand that, um, because I'm Korean. So they're like, Oh, it's your Koreatown idea. It's actually Matt drew up the whole proposal so when i met him he had the whole idea down yes it tweaked here and there we added the guest recipes blah 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 but um his love for korean food and his friend he writes about in an intro kind of started that i kind of got went along for the ride for me i was attracted to it because it wasn't um any anything any korean book out there it wasn't like Dookie's 101 Recipes. It was, it was really about the people, the culture. Mm. I liked that it wasn't so food-focused, uh, which is kind of weird from, from me because I, <laughs> I should be. Mm -hmm. But I love the fact that he was like, oh, I want to uh, you know, really showcase the people, the story, right. the cool stories of Koreatown. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, our, our, we, had, uh, we had a crazy team just kind of form mm -hmm. around it, and we were all willing to go all in. We were just like, mm -hmm. it takes all in because there's no cookbook like that. Yeah, it did. And, you know, we we really struggled at times with i mean are we doing the right thing here i mean we mm -hmm. there we're not seeing a lot of books that 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 are like this out in the marketplace we we are seeing a lot of great books beautiful books like beautiful books but they're studio books mm, right and um you know they're selling well you know these books yeah. do well and we're hoping that you know we have the right people on our production side who are going to get our, our vision and it all really came together right. and We've been really fortunate to have some really stop, nice... Stop bashing on studio books, Hattie. Well, I kind of want to. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's because... And, and, you know, just going back to Francis, too, he really gave... And this was actually his first book that he... Yeah, he, he bought. He bought yeah. um, when he, as he joined... Oh, I didn't Potter. realize yeah. that. Yeah. yeah so this uh, it says a lot about his trust in us because we're not... We're not Mario Batali. We're not yeah. a, a proven... Uh, team right so. I, and I think mm -hmm. what's wonderful uh, as far as cookbook stories go I mean he, it, it's really hard as a cookbook author I mean I know I've seen this all the time to break out when you have so many celebrity mm -hmm. TV chefs out there 
producing completely fine and good cookbooks, nice. but it's, uh, it's the books that have perhaps more of a cultural bent right. as yeah. yours does that, that when it gets kind of above the den, it's a real, it's a real mm. achievement. So. And you know, packaging too is a really important yeah. key to this. And, and Francis comes from a magazine background. I come from a magazine and web background. Right. So, and you, when you think about books in terms of packaging, you know, you look at Rice Noodle Fish, which is a great book uh, about Japan by uh, Matt Golding, who's a, also a former magazine editor. I think this is the style of cookbook that a lot of people are drawn towards. It's yeah. not just recipe, 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 circle plate, circle plate, circle plate, photo. You know, it's actually, we have sidebars, we have energy, you know, right. same, same with uh, uh, Lucky Peach's 101 Easy Asian Recipes. That yeah, was right. a book that has packaging. And I think, I hope if we do another project, we can continue the style of cookbook writing mm-hmm. where it's, you're getting every page is going to have a little bit of a, a new uh, a twist or a turn, and it's not going to be monotonous. That's that would have made me feel really bad if people thought this book is monotonous. Well, it sounds like you two are off to a pretty pretty darn good start. Thank you. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Dookie Hong and Matt Rodbard. You can find their cookbook, Koreatown, in stores right now. Guys, thanks so much for joining Mike, us. thank you for having thank us. So much. It's so great. I'm Mark Rotella. And next up, we have PW Features writer Aliyah Akam introduces some more hot new cookbooks. So stay tuned. I'm Jim Dorsey, author of Coconut Cowboy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Features writer Aliyah Akam is here to tell us all about PW's upcoming cookbooks feature. Hi, Aliyah. Hi. So it's very, very nice to have you on the line. And uh, tell us a little bit about this feature. What's the focus of it? I mean, cookbooks is a very general topic. I hear it's two C's and two B's, canning and cocktails, and then Brooklyn and barbecue. You've got it exactly ah, right. It's kind right. of a hodgepodge of interesting <laughs> things here. Um, I would say the bulk of the story, though, leans towards the rise of books that are devoted to the craft of cocktails, which um, is very exciting for me because I'm sort of obsessed with going to bars and trying new cocktails. And um, it's exciting to just see how so many books are flourishing now in in this realm. Um, it's, it's just wild to see. I started writing about cocktails in, I'd say, around 2008, and to just see how the industry has transformed since then, and it really started taking off in 2005 is sort of this turning point in cocktail history, and to just see all the range of books now that are coming out that are devoted to, you know, imaginative cocktails is, is really impressive. Now, some of the things that I've been hearing about, uh, are like tiny little distilleries making their own custom stuff, um, I've heard about uh, this, this interesting trend of um, it, people making things that aren't quite spirits that you can still serve them with a beer and wine license. Is that the sort of thing that's being incorporated into these books? Um, not so much. It's more towards, um, I'd say there's a couple of different things that were interesting to me that jumped out. Um, the craft distillery movement is definitely a big thing, and that is featured in a few of the books. Delve into that. Um, you see the rise of spirits like moonshine that, you know, have these very rural roots that are now become these mainstream 
bottles that bartenders are reaching for and turning into these wonderful inventive cocktails. So there are some books that are concentrating on the small batch craft distillery. And then there are some books, and this is the part that I find the most interesting because it sort of crosses over into branding and marketing and just sort of the lifestyle of cocktails more than the actual cocktail is are these books that are sort of from the bar it's you know there's this credibility of the bartender and the bar behind them and i think i think that's what's really interesting because it just shows that there is a robust vibrant cocktail culture going on throughout the country and in essence throughout the world right now and that's something that really jumped out at me while writing this feature well, that's very exciting. So how does Brooklyn f- sort of intersect with this? It actually does, which is, is fascinating because Brooklyn, and it, it's funny because I remember when I graduated college and first moved to Park Slope in, I guess it was 2001, and the Park Slope of 2001 was very different from the Park Slope of 2016. Oh my goodness, and yes. <laughs> just to see how it has transformed since then, um, I remember living in a pretty shoddy building and next door to it, they were working on this luxury condo. And when I walked down the street and I see it now I it's just it's, it's wild like I can't even imagine how much they're charging but Brooklyn has also become a brand like Brooklyn is essentially a place but what it has happened is Brooklyn has become a brand Brooklyn has become a lifestyle Brooklyn has become one of the most alluring places to live in America right now and one of the things that is fueling that interest and that intrigue um, or there's this plethora of restaurants and bars and there's just so much creativity going on there. And I think that's one of the ways that people identify with Brooklyn now, that there are all these books that have come out that just sort of tap into the lifestyle and the culture of this one particular borough. I mean, this Brooklyn started out as a place... I'd say in the past 10 or 15 years that people came to, you know, Manhattanites came to escape the oppressive rents. They came as a, they came there to express their creativity because studios were available to them. And now, you know, Brooklyn has become more expensive than Manhattan in many ways. And it's just sort of taken on a life of its own. And it, the restaurant culture and bar culture in particular has become very saturated. And, you know, visitors from all over are coming to Brooklyn just to eat and drink and spend their days going just to Brooklyn and not even going into Manhattan anymore. It's really interesting to see that shift. But um, as these books reveal and just in general, it's the restaurant and bar landscape that have really pushed Brooklyn forward. Well, tell us a little bit about the books that are coming out. Well, there is a there's a book that's devoted just to just to Brooklyn um, bars, and um, Carrie Jones wrote this book, and I think it's called the Brooklyn Bar Book, and it just sort of divides up all the different spirits by category, and then she delves into some of the landmark bars that um, have made waves in Brooklyn in particular, and some of these bars include Maison Premier in Williamsburg, which is this lovely New Orleans style oyster den that has amazing cocktails and clover club which is julie reiner's bar and and julie reiner made a name for herself first with Flatiron lounge in manhattan then she opened clover club in brooklyn and then most recently landa just across the street which is a latin themed bar which is just doing really wonderfully right now and you know so there is it's just sort of this 
stepping into the culture of Brooklyn, showing why these bars are special, who are some of the bartenders behind it, what are some of the drinks you should order. Um, you know, there's another book, um, Brooklyn Bar Bites book, and this book just sort of talks about the different foods, the different snacks that you can have with cocktails. So it's, there's this synergy, there's this whole experiential aspect to Brooklyn of eating and drinking, and it doesn't have to be a full multi-course meal. It doesn't have to just be a cocktail. You can sit, you can hang out, you can have a snack. So there's just this intersection of food and drink, which has become this exciting reason to come hang out in the neighborhood. Wonderful. So, and just, I want to see, just, just to hear a little bit about the cocktail books. Uh, what trends are you seeing? So as I mentioned before, um, I think the big thing we're seeing is that bars themselves, the bartenders behind these bars are putting out their own books and it's an extension not only of their brand, but it's, it's some it's a way for readers and these are readers who are drinks aficionados because they're people who have gone to these bars let's say hopefully or they want to go to these bars or they've heard about these bars so in essence by buying these books reading these books they're they're clinging to a little piece of of the bar so whether they've gone there themselves and have enjoyed it or it's a bar that they look forward to going to these these books are an extension of that culture so it's it's sort of a little souvenir of it um so to me that's what's interesting is that you know the cocktail books before there was this big cocktail renaissance of the mid-2000s you know these books are very simple it was you know this is how you make a martini you know there wasn't really a sense of authority it was just more like make these drinks if you're having a dinner party which was fine that's what the cocktail culture dictated at that time but now cocktail culture is so driven by bars and bartenders who have made names for themselves and have special cocktails associated with them so these bar books are a way to extend that and lend authority to the book and I think it's 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 a great way to just extend that brand so I think people are looking forward to that we're seeing you know Smuggler's Cove which is this fantastic tiki bar in San Francisco you know and tiki has been has been around for decades but it's still very relevant today and so many bars right now are you know employing like modern um, spins on tiki cocktails and Smuggler's Cove is probably, you know, it's the premier tiki bar in the country. And Martin and Rebecca Kate put together this book that captures not only tiki culture, but the culture of their bar specifically and why their bar, which is this zany, offbeat place, is special. So when you read the book, you get a sense of, okay, tiki culture is fascinating. This is what I remember hearing about, why it was so cool in the 1950s, but this is also a bar. Next time I'm in San Francisco, I want to go check this out because this place is special. And, you know, that's something we saw uh, years ago, a few years ago, I think it was 2011, when Jim Meehan put out the PDT cocktail book in New York. And PDT, you know, it was this very special, you know, experience. Like you'd go walk through this hot dog joint in the East Village and you'd walk through this phone booth and you'd be led to this sexy speakeasy. And it was just, it was so experiential. Like the cocktails were of course, a big part of that. They were these great quality cocktails, but it was more than that. It was more that you were walking into this, you know, dramatic, sophisticated experience. So when you bought that book, you had, uh, you, you were, you were like delving into that lifestyle. You were reading that book and you're like, this is part of 
the PDT brand. This is part of the PDT lifestyle. And it's the same thing with, say, the Smuggler's Cove book. And there's also a book that's out now from the Waldorf Astoria, the Peacock Alley Lounge inside the Waldorf Astoria. And, you know, and the Waldorf Astoria is one of the most famous hotels in the world. So by reading this book, you get a sense of the history of this fantastic hotel, but told through the classic cocktails that you know, or relevant to that hotel. So it's a really great way, I think, for these niche books to come out to just sort of connect um, the actual place with the larger movement of cocktails. So it sounds like if people get these books and they're making these drinks at home, then they can sort of close their eyes and imagine for a moment you're at the Peacock Lounge at the Waldorf Astoria and and get a little bit of that vibe. Maybe you, you want to go put on a cocktail dress and dress up a little have have a Waldorf Astoria themed party like there there's there are a lot of ways that people can make this a very personal experience exactly it's like you're conjuring the image of this seductive place but you're making it your own as opposed to just a general how to make a cocktail book which you know was fine was practical served a need when you were throwing a dinner party 10 years ago but now you don't want to just have a basic dinner party that's that generic you want to have something special you want to people over for dinner and you want to say oh these are some cocktails from death and company that amazing bar in new york let me go to my death and company cocktail book and make these drinks like there's something special about that and you know it's this whole speakeasy movement that also is from you know the, the 2000s too that came out like this the speakeasy movement made it very seductive made cocktail culture this appealing thing that we craved an experience that we wanted and i think these books make it make it accessible you know if you can't get to the bar for some reason you don't want to go to the bar you want to stay in you're able to bring a slice of that to your own home kitchen or living room by through these books so we've covered the brooklyn side and we've covered the cocktail side what else is in this cookbooks feature um so we talk about canning and canning to me i think is fascinating because it, it's an age-old kitchen ritual and the fact that it's still being used now is, uh, you know, it, it's wonderful that there's this age-old art that's still really relevant today. And I think these books are exploring it through a modern lens. And it's interesting because it's, you know, I'm not, not to connect Canning and Brooklyn, but so much of what Brooklyn's allure is, is that there's this do-it-yourself, you know, devotion to... Um, to gardening and CSAs and such. And then that spreads over to canning. I think that's also part of the allure of canning is that you're going to farmer's markets, you're preserving this wonderful fresh produce year round. So these books are able to sort of give you inspiration and incentive to make your own jams, but not just basic blueberry jam, strawberry jam. You'll get these inventive riffs on, you know, chamomile fig jam things like that and to use them in unconventional ways so you're not just making jam you have to you know slather on toast you can maybe put this jam on pancakes maybe you can put it into cocktails sure. just these really interesting uses of you know just to show you a modern way of an age-old art i think that that's kind of interesting that it's still evolving I feel like there's a, a real nostalgia theme going on here. You're talking about canning, about speakeasies. It's like the, the Great Depression all over again, except why why would anyone want to go back to the Great Depression? So we have this sort of gussied up version where we, we get all the, the nice parts without all of the struggle and strife. 
Exactly. It's, you know, it's we're constantly, I mean, I guess that's just life. Like everything just gets recycled and then we, we morph it to our current situation. And I think that's what it is. This is what we're, this is how we're embracing it now. And I think one of the books is from Ball and Ball is, you know, the mason jar gurus. When we think of mason jars, we think of Ball. And, you know, it's been around since I think it was 1884, this company started. And they're showing that they're completely still relevant by they have over 350 recipes in this book and they're showing okay you know it's not the canning that you thought of from your grandmother's approach like this is you know do this do that and it's completely modern and fits in with your with your daily life now so i think that's i think that's really neat how how it's how the art has evolved well, Aaliyah, thank you so much for taking the time to call in and tell us about all of this. The Cookbooks feature is going up on our website and in our issue on Monday, and uh, I can't wait to take a look at it. Great. Thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Tom Hart, the creator of the book Rosalie Lightning, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another delicious author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 